You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. My name is Harrison Ford. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And as always, it's a pleasure to be with you. I wonder if you have ever felt caught between two worlds. I certainly have. When I was in college, I felt caught between three worlds. So I I went to college hoping to reinvent myself, to be kind of Harrison 2.0, and uh, we're now on like Harrison 8.0, so this is a very er- early version. Um, so I went to college hoping to reinvent myself, and I went to the school I went to, Ole Miss, because I was accepted into a somewhat competitive program there. So at the beginning of freshman year, it was, um, it was uh, academic Harrison. That's kind of how I was finding my identity. But then by mid-semester... I joined a fraternity, so there was frat boy Harrison, and let me tell you, that was uh, quite the guy to know. Um, glad that he is lost to history, though. Um, and then, by the end of the semester, though, I was really starting to get involved with this campus ministry called RUF, so there was religious Harrison. And you can probably see where this is going. Uh, academic life, fraternity life, religious life, not the best mix, and I, they wouldn't, um, they didn't produce, shall we say, mutually reinforcing lifestyles. And so I felt torn between these three different worlds, three different worlds in which I was uh, a very much a different person in each one of them. I kind of felt like I was tied to three horses that were pulling me in different directions. So by the time it came to Christmas break and I went home, I was just completely undone. And I knew that something had to give. If I was going to keep my sanity, if I was going to keep, frankly, my soul, something had to give. And I imagine that you have felt this way before. Maybe you feel this way now. Feeling like you're caught up between several different worlds feeling like you're a different person depending on where you are and who you're with. Maybe at work, at the golf course, at the bar, at home, and at church. And having talked with some of you about this, I know that it's not something that you like. No one likes that feeling because it kind of feels like you're playing twister with your life. You've got one hand over here in this world, one hand over here in this world, one leg in that world, and you feel like you're about to tumble into a full-blown existential crisis. Well, I think that that is where we find Moses in today's passage. You see, Moses is a man caught between worlds. He was born a Hebrew, but he grew up Uh, Egyptian royalty. And then for the past 40 years, when we meet him here, he's been in exile in Midian, 
a place where he's raised a, a Midianite family. And it's this identity crisis that has contributed to, contributed to his inability to live into what God has called him to do. Eric preached on this last week. God comes to Moses uh, and he says, it's through you that I am going to deliver the Israelite people. And Moses essentially looks at him and says, I'm not your guy. you got to send someone else. So in order to move Moses from being a reluctant leader to being a resolute leader, we've got to solve this identity crisis that he's in. And what I want to suggest is that what is going to take him, uh, what's going to solve that is him learning to say no to the promise of Egypt and saying yes to the promise of God. And I want to say, I want to suggest this is actually true for all of us as well. If you're ever going to become the person that God made you to be, the person that God is calling to you to be, you have to stop playing existential twister. Your faith can't just be one aspect among many in your life. Your faith has to be the defining aspect of your life. Why? Well, because God made you to be his child. That's your fundamental identity. So if you would, please turn with me to Exodus 4, verses 18 to 31. You can find that obviously in your Bible or in the worship guide. Exodus 4, verses 18 to 31. I remind you that this is God's word that he's given us. He's given it to us for a purpose and for a reason even though at times it may seem hard to understand. So please read with me. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord says, said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. 
Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of people in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable to you this afternoon, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We might as well address the elephant in the room. (laughs) Um, This passage is really something. It starts off pretty normal. Okay, Moses, we've, we've kind of given, God has given you this, this call. Now make good on it. Go down to Egypt. Talk to the Israelites. And it ends pretty normally, too. It picks up that storyline. He goes down to Egypt. He meets the Israelites, and they accept him as their leader. But, oh boy, those two middle paragraphs. They are wild. First, we have God telling Moses that, hey, I want you to go down and talk to Pharaoh, but when you get down there, he's not going to listen to you, and it's because I am not letting him listen to you. And then we get to the, uh, what's regularly called by commentators one of the most strange and enigmatic passages in Scripture, the whole bridegroom of blood situation, which is uh, the name of the metal band that I'm going to start tomorrow. But I actually think, I want to suggest that if we read these in light of what I previously was talking about, this conflict of identity that Moses is experiencing, I actually think that it's not that hard to make sense of what's going on here. Like I said earlier, I think the big picture point is that God is helping Moses to say no to the promises, the false promises of Egypt, and he's helping him to embrace the promises of the covenant, the promises of Yahweh. So let's consider those two things in turn. First, let's look at verses 21 to 23, and let's see how God is helping Moses and the Hebrew people say no to Egypt. Now, again, on the face of it, this is pretty strange. God had, you know, we spent like a whole chapter with God convincing Moses to to be the person to go talk to Pharaoh. Um, Moses hemmed and hawed about it. And then, now that he's going down, God says, Hey, look, when you go down, I'm not going to let, I'm not, I'm going to make it so that Pharaoh won't let the people go. And it kind of feels like, is God setting Moses up for failure here? What gives? Well, I think if we look at verses 22 and 23, we can unpack what is going on. Because you see, it's here that we see that God is kind of laying down the gauntlet with Pharaoh. He's challenging Pharaoh to battle, as it were. So God identifies his people as his firstborn son, and he says that if Pharaoh doesn't let them go, God is going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. And he's not talking there just about Pharaoh's, literally just his son. He's talking about all all the firstborn sons of of, uh, Egypt. And in this statement, there are allusions to things that have happened in the past and allusions to things that are going to happen in the future. Looking backwards, it's referring back to chapter 2 when Pharaoh uh, decreed that all of the Hebrew newborn babies should be killed. Essentially, what Pharaoh was was doing was he was trying to 
stamp out the Hebrew people. He was trying to fully assimilate them into Egypt. But then this statement is also looking forward to the last of the ten plagues in which the angel of death comes and strikes down all of the firstborn sons in Egypt. So it may seem like this is just an application of the lex talionis, the rule of an eye for an eye. But I actually think that there's something deeper going on here. You see, Exodus was written, the fancy term for it, Exodus was written as what's called polemical theology. In other words, Exodus was written as a kind of anti-Egypt pamphlet. And so what's going on here is that um, it's not just that Egypt is is a rival earthly power to the Israelites, but Egypt represents a rival spiritual power. You see, in in Egypt, Egypt postured itself to be a kind of alternative Israel. You had the Pharaoh, who was this divine intermediary between the gods and the people. And Pharaoh, because he was the king of the Egyptians, the Egyptians saw themselves as a kind of favored, chosen people. Does it sound similar? So what we see is that underneath the enslavement of the Hebrew people is spiritual warfare. Satan is trying to snuff out the lineage that is prophesied to bring about the truer and greater Redeemer that's going to crush his head. Remember, uh, Genesis 3.15 is where that's prophesied. So we see that behind the scenes of Moses versus Pharaoh is really God versus uh, the gods of Egypt, which is really God versus Satan. And I think when you get this, this explains what is going on with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You see, in Egyptian religion, the heart recorded all of the good and the bad things that you did throughout life. All of your good and bad deeds were kind of stored up in the heart. And then when you died, uh, for them, the afterlife was your heart was taken and it was put on this scale. And on the other side of the scale was a feather from uh, the goddess uh, Ma'at, who was the goddess of truth and justice. And if your heart was in balance with the feather, your heart would then go on to eternal paradise. But if your heart was weighed down with bad deeds, it would kind of topple off and then be consumed by this other goddess. And you wouldn't go to eternal paradise. So when God is saying here that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, he's saying that he has made it weighty. That's another way we can translate that in Hebrew. He's made his heart weighty. So what God is doing is he's using the conventions of Egyptian mythology to show that he is putting Pharaoh under judgment. That Yahweh is greater and more powerful than any of the Egyptian gods. That Yahweh is the one true God. Now, let's return to Moses' crisis of identity. I want to suggest that one of the reasons God is doing this is to show Moses and the Hebrew people that there is no life 
to be found in Egypt. There's no life to be found there. Now remember, think back on their history. Egypt had been a place of life for them. They were facing, uh, back in uh, the latter part of Genesis that, that we talked about earlier last year, um, they were facing a global famine. And they went down into Egypt and they were saved because Joseph had been elevated to be one of the vice regents there. So, and then after that, they stayed in Egypt. And as we see at the beginning of Exodus, they flourish. They're growing like wildflowers. So it had once been a place of prosperity and life for them. And the same thing is true for Moses. Think about it. He grew up Egyptian royalty, a place of great privilege and prosperity. But by hardening Pharaoh's heart, God is forcing a conflict between Egypt and his people. He's guiding Moses and his people into a place where they have to definitively say no to the false promises of Egypt. And friends, this applies to us today as much as it applied to them then. You see, there is a spiritual war going on for your soul. And one of the evil one's greatest weapons is the uh, false promises of this world. The, the thought that I could have comfort and security if I just had a better job, if I just gave myself over to my work. Or the thought of, you know, I could finally have the prestige and the influence and the recognition that I truly want if I could just give myself over to, to being in the right social circles. Or I could finally have the acceptance and the validation that I so desperately crave if I can just portray myself a certain way online. Friends, the reason that we feel caught, often that we feel caught between worlds, is because we are. You see, Satan wants you to make your home here, in this kind of neo-Egypt. But like Moses, if we're going to be the person that God has made us to be, we have to say no to this world because we were made for the world that is to come. The new heavens and the new earth. So what does it look like in practice then to say no to the world? Well, part of this just requires Christian wisdom. All of our lives are different. We all have different temptations and struggles. But given that it's Lent, one practice I think we can put into place that will help us to learn to say no to the world is fasting. And I don't mean intermittent fasting, but I mean the spiritual practice of fasting. Intentionally denying yourself something that you think that you can't live without. And when that we do that, a couple of things happen. First, we learn to train ourselves to resist temptation and to resist instant gratification. And isn't that the way we often live our lives? Instant gratification. Second, it also teaches us that we can live without a lot of the things that we can't live without. You go throughout your day and you see so many ads telling you, your life is going to be terrible unless you have this thing. But the reality is when we fast, we learn, actually, we can live a lot more minimalist life, if you will, in a spiritual sense. 
And then finally, when we fast, it acquaints our heart with longing. You see, one of the lies that Satan uses to keep our eyes focused here on, the, on this earth is, um, is by lying to us and telling us that all of our longings can be satisfied here and now by people or by things or by some kind of internal sense of self. But the reality is when we fast, we remember that our deepest and truest longings can't be met here. They can only be satisfied by Christ, and they can only be satisfied in the world that is to come. So let me challenge you, this, either this week or maybe next week, to fast from something that you feel like you can't live without. And let me, let me encourage you to not just automatically go to food. Um, let me encourage you to think about fasting from something that keeps your eyes very firmly fixed on this world and not the world to come. Hint, hint, hint. <laughs> uh, for those listening on the podcast, I was raising up my, uh, my cell phone. Something that keeps me looking down, literally, rather than looking up towards God. Now, having said that, the purpose in fasting isn't just to deprive yourself as kind of a way, as kind of a mode of penance, but rather it, it's not just about saying no to the false promises of this world, but it's also about cultivating desire and longing for the promises of God, or learning to orient our heart towards them. And that is, I want to submit to you, what this next really bizarre paragraph is about, verses 24 to 26. This passage, like I said earlier, is frequently called by commentators one of the most perplexing and enigmatic passages in Scripture. But I think if you boil it down to its most basic movements, the, the overarching meaning of the passage is pretty clear. So what's going on? Well, God threatens to kill someone. I say someone because it could be Moses, it could be his son Gershom. It's unclear in the text, and there's good arguments for both. So God is threatening to kill someone, but that threat is staved off when Moses' wife cuts off the foreskin of her son and throws it at Moses' feet. Now, when you boil it down to that, what I think you have left is two important questions. One, why was God threatening to kill someone? And two, what was it about this circumcision that made God relent from that attack? Now, to answer those two questions, we need to remember what circumcision represented in the Old Testament. It was a sign of inclusion into the covenant community. So when newborn boys were eight days old, they would be circumcised as a sign that they were being born into the covenant people. And Hebrew girls, they would be a part of the covenant community as well, but by the virtue of their father's circumcision. So circumcision was a sign then that the parents were claiming the promises of God on behalf of their children. Now, what we learn here from this passage is that Moses' firstborn son, Gershom, isn't circumcised. 
And I think when we read that in light of this identity crisis, it becomes clear, a bit more clear what's going on. Gershom not being circumcised is a sign that Moses hasn't yet fully embraced the promises of Yahweh. And he's not living in obedience to him. So God forces the issue by threatening their life in the same way that he's going to threaten the life of the Egyptian firstborns, sons. God, in other words, is taking drastic measures here to make Moses finally embrace the promises of the covenant over against the promises of, of Egypt. And notice that it's actually not Moses that uh, ends up doing this. It's his wife, Zipporah. She is doing what Moses should have done. And I actually think this is added in there to show that Moses has, just to heighten the fact that Moses had failed in spiritually leading his family. So the question then is, if you can't lead them, how is he going to lead the entire people of God as their spiritual leader? So, in the same way that God is forcing Moses in this prior paragraph to say a definitive no to the promise of Egypt, he's forcing him here to say finally a definitive yes to living as one of God's people. And friends, God is going to bring each of us to this same place, not through the same circumstances, but God, God is going to bring each of us to a point of decision, where we either have to identify with the world or with God because we can't identify ourselves with both. He's going to bring us to a point in which we have to decide whether being a child of God is just going to be one thing among many in our lives or whether it is going to be the thing in our life. So what does that look like? Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk here about baptism. You see, baptism operates in the new covenant in the same way that circumcision did in the old covenant. It marks you out as a child of God, and it's kind of the initiatory right into the people of God. In John Calvin's Catechism of the Church of Geneva, he wrote this, Question, how do you know yourself to be a son of God in fact as well as in name? Answer, because I'm baptized in the name of God the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So what Calvin is saying is that if you want to be sure as to your status before God, that you're really one of his children, he's saying, look back at your baptism. Because your baptism is the thing that marks you out as a child of God. Your baptism is the thing that brings you into the church. So if you're in here today and you believe in Christ, but you've not yet been baptized, friends, uh, let's remedy that. Talk to me or to Eric or one of the elders here, and let's find a time to have you baptized so that you can have this assurance as to God's love for you, that you're his child, and so that you can walk in obedience to him. Or if, if you're a parent in here and your child is not yet baptized, please, again, come to myself or Eric or one of the elders and let's have that conversation because remember peter in his pentecost sermon in acts 2 he says for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off now if you're in here today and you are baptized 
let me encourage you to remember your baptism. When I was a teenager, um, before I would go and, and, and hang out with my friends, my parents would, before I would leave, my parents would always say, remember who you are. And I hated that phrase. I remember one time I said, how can I not remember who I am? I was just so mad and so angsty. Um, never really got past that. Uh, I just hated when they would say that. But now I get what they were talking about. They, were, they knew all of the kinds of temptations that I was going to face, especially with the crew that I ran with for a while. So they were telling me to remember how, who they had raised me to be. And not only that, but remember the fact that they loved me. And they raised me that way because they wanted the best for me. Friends, baptism operates in the same way. It reminds us who we really are. We are God's beloved child. And because of that, God, because of that, life goes best when we live as a child of God should live. And because of that, God gives us these guidelines because he wants life to go well for us. He does it out of love. So, child of God, if you want to say no to the false promises of this world and say yes to the sure promises of God, remember your baptism. Remember who you are. Now, in closing, um, given the fact that I'm standing up here today, you can probably guess how that my whole college existential crisis resolved. Uh, religious Harrison won out over academic Harrison and frat bro Harrison. And let me tell you why. Um, so I, throughout that, that entirety of that first semester, I was desperately trying to find my identity through my grades and through who I knew and how funny and liked I could be. Um, and that lifestyle was physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausting. I was like, I was like a hamster on a hamster wheel, wheel, just always running, getting nowhere. It was all up to me. It was all about my performance. It was all about me trying to actualize my self-identity. And at the end of the way, at the end of the day, I completely buckled under that weight. It crushed me. But then I remember starting to go to RUF, and I started to hear a completely different message. I heard the message that it wasn't about what I did, but it was about what Jesus did for me. I heard it wasn't about how lovely I try and make myself out to be, but it's about how much God loves me. I learned it wasn't about how I tried to portray myself and how I tried to project myself as this, uh, as this really great person, but rather I learned that I could be my really true self, which is pretty messed up, and that God would meet me there with his grace. And that message completely changed, it changed everything for me throughout college. It especially changed, funny enough, my academic and my social life. Because you see, um, they actually ended up being great sources of joy to me throughout the rest of college. Because as I increasingly learned to not go to those wells 
uh, as a source of identity, I could go to them and let my identity as a child of God change the way that I inhabited those spaces. I could be there in a way in which I wasn't trying to draw from them my sense of self. And friends, this can be the case for you as well. You see, as you learn to say no to the promises of this world, and as you learn to embrace the promises of God, you'll find, surprisingly enough, God is actually going to send you back into the world. Just like he does with Moses, sending him back into Egypt. Except God's not going to send you back into the world so that you can then draw your sense of identity or your sense of purpose or your sense of self from it, but rather God is going to send you back into the world to tell people about God's grace and that there is a true and a great deliverer. Would you pray with me? Father, um, we need your deliverance. We, we so frequently live uh, for the false promises of this world. But Father, we know deep down that that is killing us. And so we ask, would you deliver us from that? Like you did with Moses here, would you force us to recognize that we have to say no to, e to Egypt, to this world? And would you force us, through your grace, uh, to embrace your promises in Christ? Father, we are weak to do that ourselves, but we are hopeful, knowing that you love us so deeply and you so long to call us your children, that you will bring us home. So we pray, Father, that you will do that through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.